And so, you know, I think in healthcare, we have an advantage in the sense that people find their work to be deeply meaningful. I mean, it's hard to get that sense of meaning and purpose that you get when you're saving someone's life. As a result, in our survey research, we find that 89% of healthcare workers are saying that the work they do is meaningful to them. And that includes non-clinical people. So that's amazing. We're starting with this great asset of that meaning and purpose. But I think where people are getting less patient is all of the friction that gets in the way of that connection, right? So I want to come to work and do that meaningful, purposeful thing. All of the extra stuff that doesn't add value to that objective, I'm not as willing to tolerate as maybe I was before. Because I think in general, people are um, zooming out and saying, wow, life is short. What am I going to spend my time doing? It's not all of these inefficient, non-value-added processes. Yeah. And it's not just employees. It's at the leadership levels, too. Executives are rethinking and questioning. Yeah. So it's, it's a universal issue. Welcome to CEO on the Go, the show about personal and professional growth for busy leaders like you. I'm Gail Lance, and I'm here to help you think differently, solve big problems, and inspire change. It's tough to do on your own and even with a team, but it is possible. So let's get started. Welcome to another special episode. I hope you had a chance to listen to my previous episode called Courageous Leadership in Healthcare with Dr. Catherine Meese. We talked about issues facing leaders in healthcare, but the insights can apply to leaders in any industry. Healthcare executives in particular have experienced extreme challenges, so there's a lot that you can learn from them, even if you happen to be in a different field. And we covered highlights from the UAB 40th National Symposium for Healthcare Executives in that last episode, so check that out. Catherine's area of expertise happens to be in the area of well-being, so I wanted to talk about that specifically since well-being is such a hot topic. It seems it's easier to talk about it than to put it into practice. And as you know, if you follow my work, I really like talking about the importance of studying what's working, what's good, what you appreciate, or what you want more of, as opposed to dwelling on problems or what you don't want. So I really like the idea of doing a deeper dive into the area of well-being, knowing that that's something that we all want more of. Catherine has done extensive research in this area, specifically as it relates to work, so I couldn't wait to continue our conversation knowing it would be valuable for you to hear, especially this time of year, as we wrap up this year and look forward to the new year ahead, hopefully with a sharper focus on well-being. As I mentioned in my previous episode, Catherine is an assistant professor in the Department of Health Services Administration at UAB, that's the University of Alabama at Birmingham. She also serves as the Director of Wellness Research in the UAB Medicine Office of Wellness. So I'm excited to talk about and learn more about this topic today. I know it will get you thinking about how you can foster more well-being for yourself, your team, and your culture. It's something that we all need more of. So enjoy part two of my conversation with Dr. Dr. Catherine Meese. Catherine, welcome back to CEO on the go. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be with you again. This is this is just a, a special episode we decided to do to tack on to part one. Again, so appreciated your views or your perspective on the recent symposium that you hosted to address leadership issues for healthcare executives. So in case 
people missed that episode, they definitely need to check that one out as well. But today we're kind of shifting focus and we're nearing, you know, the end of the year and the middle of holiday season is when this episode is expected to air. And a theme that we touched on in the previous episode was well-being and and kind of self-care and especially people in healthcare struggle with that so much themselves. But you are an expert in that. That's the area of your research. So wanted to to learn more about what you have found and why you even got into this field in the first place. So maybe we should start there. Sure. Um, well, I will just quickly clarify that while I may be a research, um, uh, you know, have research expertise on well-being, I am not an expert at perfectly taking care of myself. So okay. um, you know, <laughs> we won't hold you to that. Yes. I think we all have room for improvement on that one. So, um, so you know, it, it's really interesting how I got into this space. I was actually working in oil and gas um, and finance as a risk analyst on the international crude trading get- desk. And my husband at the time was in medical school. And so, you know, I would come home from my great little nine to five with wonderful benefits and a great culture at work. And he will, you know, would have come off two 30 hour back-to-back shifts. Right. Um, and I would see how exhausted he was and it seemed unsafe and unhealthy. And I remember telling him, you know, oh, and by the way, he was paying to work that much uh, in med school. And so I remember telling him if this was happening in any other industry, it would be on the front page of the news, like every day, you know, it's expected in healthcare. And so I really had an opportunity to sort of see his journey through um, what is just expected as a physician trainee. And it really made me realize when I started getting into the literature on what's happening around physician burnout, that, gosh, there are some really surprising system level things that, of course, are contributing to this. And so that got me interested really personally in getting into the well-being space because my family was living it. So um, my broader research interest is in organizational behavior and leadership. And so I see well-being research as a subset of that. Good. Good. So tell us then, what is it that you have found to be most interesting or surprising in the research that you've been doing? Yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of different perspectives in the well-being space. And often um, the commentary that we hear both in healthcare, but but elsewhere as well, is here's what you can do to improve your own well-being. Here's how you can go fix yourself, right? If you realize that there's a well-being issue, Here's how you can fix yourself. So, and before you go on, what is well-being? How would you define it? Right. So um, lots of different definitions. The one that I tend to prefer is um, using the jobs demands resources theory, which states that well-being occurs at um, the demands of the job and the resources that you have to meet those demands. And so it's really a balance of those two things. It's not only having resources, it's having enough resources to meet the demands that you have. Okay. Does it have to do with emotional health? So there are lots of different models. <laughs> okay. That would have been my assumption. So that's why I just wanted to ask. Right. So, and, and, you know, it's interesting when you meet people in this space, people tend to sort of have their pet area that, um, that they like to focus on, but we use a more comprehensive view of what well-being means. So that's emotional well-being, psychological well-being, intellectual well-being, occupational well-being, physical well-being, and spiritual well-being. And so all of those different elements help us to be well. Um, And so, you know, in the workplace, sometimes we tend to focus on those certain elements more than others, right? Like we have an employee wellness office that only manages physical health of our employees because as a self-insured large employer, that helps with my expense on the insurance side, right? Or we have this group over here that only focuses on 
you know, emotional well-being. We're whole humans. And so all of those elements interact together to help us with a sense of well-being. And so if we're not addressing our multifaceted nature of humans, we're sort of missing something, right? Okay. So it is a more comprehensive It's much more comprehensive. Okay, good. All right. Just wanted to make sure I was tracking with you on that. So back to the research, anything surprising or interesting or that you uncover that, that made, you know, kind of made your eyebrows go up and go, hmm, I don't, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I started doing some research on healthcare workers um, in June of 2020. So right when the pandemic was hitting and I wanted to understand what experiences are these people having and are they okay, right? Hearing all of these stories that were happening from the front lines of healthcare. And so in my first study, we controlled for all kinds of different factors to try to understand what is driving an overall distress score. Okay. What we call the well-being index score is the score that we use and it's a measure of distress. And so we, you know, captured things like lack of access to PPE, um, exposure to COVID patients. We looked at things like death of a loved one, whether or not you had childcare support, race, age, gender, et cetera. So we looked at all of these different factors And we also captured things like heavy workload, long hours, et cetera. And what was so shocking to me is I really expected that it was going to be the clinical work, right? Like the exposure to COVID patients and wondering if you have PPE and you're going to die. And all of the things at home that were so stressful for so many of us, right? Um, My kid's school closed or, you know, I'm having financial strain or my elderly parents are sick. So we, we captured a lot of that. And what was so shocking is in our analysis, those things were not statistically significant. It was the work, the things that were actually moving the needle on distress. It was the work, which would really, I did not expect. And and the other finding that was really quite surprising for us is so much of the conversation in the healthcare space around well-being, and I think in other industries too, is about building your own personal resilience. And so we actually measured for individual resilience. And what we found was that in 2020, while it was statistically significant, okay, so it's an important part of the equation, it explained less of the of the change in distress scores than reporting heavy workload or long hours. Meaning it's not you, it's the work. Yeah. Well, I, you know, you and I haven't even talked about this, but there's a, a, a stress test, so to speak, that we offer through through my business, Work Matters, that looks at what the ultimate cause of stress is in the workplace. It, you know, it could be the, the boss-employee relationship or manager-employee relationship. It could be a number of different things. So it'd be interesting to, to share that with you at some point, because there seems to be some overlap there. Yeah. Well, and in subsequent studies, some other alarming, surprising things um, came out of the research. One is that that individual resilience score actually became st- not statistically significant. So it was it was most helpful in the first phase of the pandemic, but not as things went on. And we started to see more of these work culture, work environment type factors. So um, lack of autonomy, lack of resources, lack of trust was a huge one. And then perceived organizational support. Do I feel like the organization supports me, values my extra efforts and contributions, and values my well-being? And that was our number one predictor of distress in 2022. Wow. So for leaders that are listening, they're wondering, okay, there's so many areas that they need to try to help their employees with and themselves. But when they're really trying to help support their teams or other people that they work with, what do you suggest as a starting point since this is such a multifaceted issue? Right. So a couple of things. One of the big things that we're learning and has been somewhat consistent over the last three years of the data that we've collected 
is that what people say is the thing that's stressing me or what people say is the reason why I'm going to leave is not actually statistically what's predicting changes and the measures that we're interested in. So let me give you an example. Um, We had 1,200 pages of comments in my last survey of people telling us why they want to leave or why they're frustrated. And so money keeps coming up. I I need to get paid more. I don't make enough money. I want to raise, right? So as a leader, it's easy for me to hear that and to say, oh, okay, the solution is let's see if we can get some raises going on. Let's see if we can, you know, promote some people. And that's so typically what we do, right? When we actually look statistically at what was predicting someone's turnover intention, money didn't even make the list. You know, a perception of inadequate pay didn't even make it onto the list of factors of the top 10 things that were predicting it, mostly the culture, and it was trust, and it was support from colleagues. Trust, support from colleagues, autonomy, and a sense of belonging. And so the takeaway from that is when people say it's the money, what they might actually be saying is, you don't pay me enough to put up with all this other junk at work, right? Not that I need more money, it's that you don't pay me enough to put up with all this, right? And so that informs a different intervention when we can understand that nuance. It's not about making sure that my people get a few more dollars per hour because they're probably going to leave in six months anyways. It's about making sure that those broken elements of my culture and my work environment, and maybe some of those toxic leader behaviors are addressed and there's accountability and that my people feel supported at work. Yeah. So how would leaders know what those are? How would those be uncovered ideally? So um, a couple options at our disposal. One, there have been some very large studies recently, um, which have looked at what predicts turnover intention across 34 million employees or participants. Um, And those things tend to be um, toxic corporate culture is the number one. Things like failure to recognize employee performance. Mm -hmm. Appreciation. Appreciation or response to COVID-19, et cetera. And I'm happy to share the link to that research in the, the episode notes. Um, So there's some things that we know across very large populations are important. So if we're not doing addressing at least those, if we're not doing those basics, we're going to have a problem. The other element is we have to talk to our people. We have to measure and we have to understand what is their lived experience. What we're seeing in our research is that the lived experience of different roles is very different across the organization, including whether or not they trust senior leadership. So we have the same senior leadership team. But those perceptions of trust vary greatly within the organization. Um, So certainly leader visibility, having those conversations with your people, not hiding behind the desk. um, That gives you that real-time feedback to start to understand what's going on. I also always like to recommend some source of objective measurement because, again, sometimes what people say is the issue is not necessarily quantitatively what's the issue. And that can be difficult to disentangle in a conversation because... People don't know how to say the nuance of, it's not that I don't make enough money, it's that you can't pay me enough. Yeah, that's a good point is that sometimes employees don't know how to articulate what the real issues are. Or they may be just um, regurgitating what they've heard from other people, or they may be in habits where they are just used to talking about an issue uh, for a long time and not able to see it through a different lens. So yeah, really trying to get to what's really happening is is so important. Right. And I the, the quantitative measurement is really important around that. So whether it's through your annual employee engagement survey or whether you partner with an academic partner to help you measure and assess that, there are lots of options. But just the conversation, I think, is not enough because people don't always know how to describe 
what's driving certain behaviors. Yeah, interesting. And sometimes the surveys alone are not enough because they don't get at what employees <laughs> might really want to say. So I guess it works in both ways. Um, it does work in both ways. Yeah. And it should. I mean, from a research perspective, you know, if you're a manager, how do you solve a problem? You look at data, you talk to people, right? So as a researcher, I want to look at data and I want to talk to people. Um, and so I think that gives us more ideas about how to solve the problem. Yeah. You and I had had a conversation um, before today talking about designing or redesigning work and why that's so important to consider now. So can you share a little bit about what leaders should be thinking about? Because that sounds like a monumental task, you know, to say, we've got to redesign work, but there's there's a real need for that, I think, but you could speak to that. Right. So, you know, I think we're in a bit of a situation where we don't have a choice. Um, We have historically low unemployment. We have people who are able to get promotions or get into jobs without all of the training experience or degrees that they might have needed a few years ago. As many people close to retirement step down from their positions. And so the war for talent is all the more competitive um, than it has been in the past. And so I think as a result, in aggregate, people's tolerance for putting up with broken work is much lower than it was before. So they're going to walk out the door and find that organization or that group that's already figured this out, right? So the impetus is it's urgent somewhat if we want to keep talent. Um, So a couple of things. One, I think, you know, understanding that people now have had a taste of flexibility in their work and that's an expectation moving forward, right? So now if I'm unhappy with having to be in the office this many days a week or at these specific hours, I'm just going to go take a job out of state that's fully remote that pays me more, right? Mm -hmm. So my ability to easily jump to something else for the flexibility that I want has has just become more of an option for me. And so I think organizations have to balance redesigning and for flexibility in work, but also recognizing that there do need to be in-person interactions and some businesses, your clients have to be handled in person, right? Healthcare is a great example. We can't, you know, be at the bedside from far away. And so trying to figure out how do we balance those business needs with also recognizing that people want some autonomy over their time and they want flexibility. So that's that's one important thing. And, you know, it may be if you're a business that has certain shifts that have to be covered, you know, your storefront that has to be open, your hospital that has to have people at the bedside, maybe the flexibility piece is giving people some autonomy in how they schedule themselves, right? This shift might be more preferable than that one. The work gets covered and done, but people have some choice in the matter. And so I think people are wanting autonomy, they're wanting flexibility, and they're less willing to put up with the poor toxic, negative toxic cultures. They're less willing to put up with um, inefficiency that doesn't seem to have a purpose, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost like leaders don't have a choice. They're going to have to look at this issue. And I just wanted to add to that the importance of really redesigning for the future. Really like in, you know, there were conversations about trends in telehealth and every, you know, you know, the healthcare trends better than I do, but really looking through a future lens and trying to make sure that you're doing what you need to do to position for the future and not just try to take care of the immediate needs and scramble to, to redesign for what's happening now. Absolutely. And so, you know, I think in healthcare, we have an advantage in the sense that people find their work to be deeply meaningful. I mean, it's hard to get that sense of meaning and purpose that you get when you're saving someone's life. As a result, in our survey research, we find that 89% of healthcare workers are saying that the work they do is meaningful to them. And that includes non-clinical people. So that's amazing. We're starting with this great asset of that meaning and purpose. But I think where people are getting less patient is all of the friction that gets away in that 
in the way of that connection, right? So I want to come to work and do that meaningful, purposeful thing. All of the all of the extra stuff that doesn't add value to that objective, I'm not as willing to tolerate as maybe I was before. Because I think in general, people are um, zooming out and saying, wow, life is short. What am I going to spend my time doing? It's not all of these inefficient, non-value-added processes. Yeah. And it's not just employees. It's at the leadership levels, too. Executives are rethinking and questioning. Yeah. So it's, it's a universal issue. Um, so as we wrap up, because we are really close to the holidays and uh, the new year, what tips do you have? Like dealing with stress and the work, you know, whatever work issues typically occur this time of year, there are performance reviews for a lot of organizations and you know, trying to wrap up loose ends. Um, I know healthcare may be different because the needs are constant. <laughs> but what what tips do you have, especially for this time of year, as you're trying to kind of bring a close to the year and start on a fresh, fresh uh, start for the new year? Absolutely. So I'll share a few things. And some of these, you know, I'm imagining an eye roll because some of us have probably heard these things a million times over, but they are evidence-based. Yeah, it's research-based. <laughs> yeah, it's research-based. So, so I have to say it, you know, there's no better answer. But, um, you know, if you're not getting enough sleep, sleep is absolutely critical. Um, if you feel like a drunk person after not getting sleep, it's because essentially your body is a drunk person after not getting sleep, right? So I think um, as a leader, not only prioritizing my own sleep, but also making sure that I have a culture where I'm not glorifying lack of sleep, right? Where when people say, oh, I stayed up all night and pulled an all-nighter to do this last-minute task, I'm not going to glorify that. I'm not highlighting that. And I'm not creating that expectation. Also, as a leader, I'm not sending emails in the middle of the night because I'm showing my team that sleep's not important. And so really role modeling that and prioritizing for yourself. Um, of course, exercise, we all know is important, but in terms of a stress reliever, it's tremendously important. So um, interestingly, zebras actually don't develop ulcers because they run when they're scared, right? They're getting exercise when they're scared. And so even if you hate exercise, anything, you know, row for five minutes, go for a walk outside, anything you can do to get your body moving is hugely helpful. Um, two other things I'll say, one is called four, seven, eight breathing. And so this is something that people might be familiar with, but it's something that you can do on the Zoom in the boardroom without other people really noticing when you're feeling stressed in the moment. Or, you know, if it's holidays when, you know, mother-in-law walks in and starts pointing out all the scuffs on your wall. So it's you breathe in for four seconds. Through your nose, through your mouth. Through your nose. You hold for seven and then you breathe out for eight. And what's happening in your body is it's actually telling your amygdala, your fear center, calm down. There's no threat. You're okay. And that changes your body's physiological response to stress. And so that's something that you can do without being detected, without being uncovered by the people around you. And then the last thing I'll say is that so many of us probably listening to this, whether it happened in the last two years or before, have experienced a trauma. So whether that was a COVID-related trauma where you lost someone who was too young to die, or you saw something that was very disturbing to you, or whether it's a previous trauma, all of our other efforts in well-being are going to fall short until we address the trauma. And so I always encourage people, if that's a part of your story, first of all, you're in good company. And second of all, you have to do the work to address the trauma because trying to make in incremental improvements on top of that is never going to get you to the place that you want to be. And so there are a lot of ways to do that, but starting with a counselor is, is a good first step. 
Yeah, that's an area of interest to me too. I've enjoyed learning more about that as an amateur. So I appreciate your bringing us home with some of those um, great tips to think about, especially this time of year. And again, for spending even more time with me to share your brilliance in this area. And um, I look forward to hearing what you continue to uncover in your research. Is there any best way for people to reach you to learn more about the work that you're doing in this area? Yeah, certainly. So of course, you're welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn. I try to post like a really easy to digest um, summary of my research there for people who may not want to read long, boring articles. Um, And then certainly um, willing, you know, happy to connect with you um, on my faculty website at uab.edu. Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Catherine, for joining me again and sharing your insights. And I wish you a happy holiday season. Thank you so much. You too. Thanks. And for everyone else listening in, I hope you focus on your well-being a lot more than you have this year, especially as you wrap up this year and head into the new year and continue to do the work that matters to you. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, be sure to share this episode with someone else who might benefit or leave a review. You can join my email list by going to workmatters.com so you don't miss an episode. And there you can learn more about ways we serve mission-driven leaders like you. If there's a challenge you want to discuss, I'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, keep growing as a leader, inspiring change, and doing the work that matters to you.